The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning and happy holidays to everyone. I have with me today uh, my friend Gretchen Lichtenberger. Uh, it has taken me a long time to convince her to be on the show, and I'm just delighted that uh, I've captured her and she's on the show today. Good morning, Gretchen. Good morning, Francie. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show today. You're welcome. I'm sorry I haven't had time to get on it sooner. I've, I've always wanted to and just never seemed to carve out the time. Well, thank you for asking again. You're a busy lady, and we're going to be talking about uh, service of process today. But I want to—I want people to just have a flavor of your background and all the things you're involved in. So, um, you started out working for an attorney service originally. Um, what year was that? Long time ago. Um, I believe that was in 2004, uh, December of 2004. Actually, the end of December. And I became a process server because I wanted to get into forensics and I didn't have any experience and it was really hard to break into that, that genre. And with mm-hmm. CSI out there, forensics was a huge thing and there was just no jobs anywhere for anybody with no experience. So the Santa Barbara, I mean, the Ventura Sheriff told me, well, just go out and get six more months of internship. So I sent letters out to all kinds of private investigators offering to help do grunt work and nobody responded except one guy. And he called Uh me up and he said, you know, if you want to get an investigation, you should, you know, become a registered process server and join the listserv. I didn't even know what a listserv was. And um, I started looking into being a process server and I go, you know, I could do this. And I was born to be a process server, so I was absolutely ecstatic that that gentleman took the time out of his busy schedule to call me and give me that that idea. Mm-hmm. So I went to work for an attorney service. I worked for them for a year. I knew nothing. So I educated myself by going to Tony Klein's seminars, reading his books, reading everything I could see online, reading the case law, the codes, and started serving process for a few judgment companies, companies that enforce judgment. Yeah, and let's because back of my inquisitive it. nature, yeah. I started delving into what the judgment enforcement business was about. And in 2009, I started my own judgment enforcement business. I'm still a process server, though. I'll never give that up. And after I started working in the judgment business, 
I found out that attorneys know how to litigate and win a judgment, which is essentially a worthless piece of paper when you don't know how to enforce it. So I got my paralegal certificate, and the only reason I got it was so that I could contract freelance with attorneys and help them enforce their judgment. So what I do is I do the whole action plan, present it to the attorney, he reviews it all, and with his client, he decides which enforcement he wants to do. I prepare all the documents. He reviews, he or she reviews them all. And then as a registered process server, I serve the documents too. So I have a perfect little niche that I don't, I don't think anyone else is working. Sounds like. That's great. Well, let, let me back up for a second because I want to cover some things um, that I think maybe people don't know. What is an attorney service? An attorney service... There are companies out there that help attorneys do all the mundane work that they don't want to do. So typically what attorney services do is the bigger ones, they will have contracts with the big law firms. They will set out a route. So whatever the contract is with the law firm, so maybe Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they send a runner into the law firm to pick up any document, any outgoing document. Mm-hmm. They take those documents back to their office and they process them based on the instructions from the, the law firm. So maybe these documents need filing. Maybe these documents need um, serving. Maybe these documents need to be researched. You have to pull court records from the records room. Whatever they need the attorney service to do for them, they're basically mm-hmm. like a, like a, um, um, what's the word I want? Like a personal assistant to the attorney sir, to the attorney's offices, and mm-hmm. the, sometimes they give the the attorney's service instructions saying, "Please file this summons and complaint, then serve it, then return, then file the proof of service, then return all the conformed copies to us." So some attorney services do that. Some law firms use the attorney service just to file the documents but they have their own process servers to serve it. And it just depends. But attorney services basically do all of those interactive things with the court and, and the recorder's office. They'll, they'll do recordings at the recorder's office or they'll pull documents from the recorder's office. Um, whatever it is that the law firm is needing, they, mm-hmm. they usually use the attorney service to do that. Outside, it's outside the law firm. It's not any legal work. It's just, court runner type of work. Right, right. And then, Gretchen, you mentioned Tony Klein, and I've got to give him a little little time here because Tony Klein is a premier process server in California. He's based in San Francisco, and he's probably trained the entire world of registered process servers and private investigators in California, I suspect. And yeah, I uh, would... Uh, when I first started, I... The, the attorney service I was working for hadn't even heard of him, didn't know anything about him, and I bought his book. I read it cover to cover, the blue book. I read mm-hmm. it cover to cover, and most of it didn't make sense to me because I didn't have any experience. As I right. got a little more experience, three or four months into it, I read the book cover to cover again, and I bought a second copy, and I kept one in my office and one in my car for reference, and I went to his seminar. And every year at the end of January, Tony has seminars I think two or three of them throughout California. It's called what's new in process serving. Mm-hmm. And he updates all of us process servers on what case law came down in the previous year that affects process serving 
what new laws there are that affect process serving, what new forms there are, that sort of thing. So I always make sure to attend his event because mm-hmm. he, he helps keep us on top of the game, which is really important. And he's been very kind with his time because yeah. I'm kind of an annoying person at times because I ask so many <laughs> questions. I have to know stuff and I have to do it right. So mm-hmm. I'm always going to ask. And I, I sought out Tony's wisdom quite a bit in the early years of my, my career. Yeah. You're right. He's very generous with his time and and any time on the phone in person, uh, he goes out of his way to to assist. So he's a, just a great guy, a great wealth of knowledge. And uh, so I just wanted to make sure everybody knew about Tony Klein, K L E I N. I think it is. Could I could I give out his website? Do you mind? Sure. Go ahead. It's P S Institute, like Process Server Institute. Mm-hmm. PSinstitute.com. And, and Tony Klein is K-L-E-I-N. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. So um, you also talked about this action plan. So this is something I've never heard about before. So tell us a little bit about how you develop an action plan for an attorney. Well, the action plan is specifically for judgment enforcement. And what it, what it is is once they have a judgment, against an individual or against an entity, then I take that judgment and I start researching the debtor, the person that owes the money, and I Mm -hmm. try to find any and all possible assets that could be seized. I try to find out if the name is correct, if the naming is accurate. I research title to the real property because if you have a judgment in the name of Bob Smith, and you record an abstract at the county recorder's office in the name of Bob Smith, your debtor, because Bob Smith owns a million-dollar house, if he doesn't hold title as Bob Smith, that abstract won't attach. If he Mm -hmm. holds title as Robert J. Smith, trustee of the Smith Family Trust, dated April 10th, 2004, your abstract isn't going to attach. So attorneys don't know that, and so what I do is, because I'm real familiar with all the different creditor remedies that are available in Title IX, mm-hmm. I um, write up a plan based on what I find out. So, in other words, if he has a house and the, the name is different, then I say we should do an affidavit of identity, we should record the abstract, we should do this, we should do that. I itemize each different remedy with the code section so the attorney can reference the code t- sections that I'm so, you know, I'm not giving him le- him or her legal advice. I'm giving them the, the law for them to re- research it themselves and make sure that I'm giving them accurate information. Mm-hmm. And then they, I give them an estimated cost, what it will cost to do that enforcement, an estimated timeline. And then the attorney reviews it with his client, his or, his or her client, and then decides, all right, we're going to do this and this and this, but let's skip this one. Mm-hmm. So the action plan is, here's all the assets that were found, here's the potential remedies that you can utilize, and here's the estimated cost and how much time it's going to take. Excellent. Now, and did you learn that by just re- researching it yourself, or did you get some of that through uh, your paralegal studies? Well, 
unfortunately, or fortunately, paralegal studies that I took, it's a two-year class, and I took it through UC Santa Barbara Extension, which is an ABA-approved school. But that school is designed, rightfully so, to educate paralegals that are going to be working in a law office. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hey, we're back with Gretchen Lichtenberger. We had the wonders of technology, a little... Uh, issue with a cell phone transmission. Uh, Gretchen is out working in the field and took the time to pull alongside the road with her cell phone and uh, participate in the show. So we had a little difficulty. I hope you all are still with us. Uh, So Gretchen, I have no idea uh, where we left off, but you were talking about uh, being work uh, going to school at UC Santa Barbara and the classes were for Paralegals are going to be working at a law firm. Right. Um, My apologies. So with the paralegals, um, my class that I took, I took the class to get my certificate, but the school is primarily for paralegals who are going to work in law offices, which was not my intent. My intent was, but I had to get the education. So your question to me was if, how did I learn about doing these action plans? Mm -hmm. The way Mm -hmm. that I... The way that I learned is because I had already started my judgment business and I was actually enforcing judgment. So the other thing is um, there's a judgment group that I belong to and that has been extremely helpful as well because there's a lot of very, very intelligent and 
educated people in the business, and they're very willing to help us, anybody that wants to learn the nice. business. Yeah. And I also am very blessed that I live one mile from an excellent law library, so it's kind of my second home. I'm in there all the time <laughs> reading the books and studying the books, and, you know, it's surprising to me that attorneys put out some of the junk pleadings that they do considering there's so much help and so much informational reading that can be found right in the law library. Yeah, wow. And now, uh, Gretchen, you teach classes yourself now. You've been approved for the uh, mandatory continuing education credits for the State Bar of California. So uh, how did you get that set up? Well, I, as a process server, it was kind of annoying to me that attorneys didn't know anything about service of process. They kept telling me to do things as a process server that I wasn't allowed to do, and I wouldn't do them. Mm-hmm. And I lost a few clients for that, but that's all right with me. They aren't the kind of attorneys I wanted as clients. So I thought, well, how come nobody teaches attorneys about service of process? So I checked with some law schools, and there was no, there's no classes that, that do it. I offered, wow. I even offered to you know, do some sort of little classes through the law school, but they kind of are set in their curriculum. So mm-hmm. I went on the State Bar's website and I found out, because I thought, you know, I want to teach attorneys. So I went on their website and I found out what it took to become an MCLE provider. So in 2008, I created my first educational one-hour class for attorneys and paralegals, and I submitted it to the State Bar for approval you know, the curriculum, and they approved it. And I was like, wow, cool. That's great. So I subsequently got two, three more approved. I have two that are service of process and two that are on judgment enforcement. So I travel throughout the state of California helping to educate. You know, one of the topics is basics and the other is ethics. They're two different, two different topics. I mean, even though they're both on service of process, Mm-hmm. It talks about different parts of service of process because mm-hmm. attorneys don't realize they have an ethical duty. And I try to drum that into their heads. Process servers and attorneys have an ethical duty. They talk about sewer services a lot. And the problem with that is that sewer services don't happen only with process servers. It actually goes all the way to the black robes because the attorneys, they put a lot of pressure on the process servers. They don't really care whose name's on that proof of service. They just want some signature on a proof Mm -hmm. of service that they can get filed with the court before their order to show cause hearing so they don't have to stand in front of the judge and tell the judge why they haven't moved the case along. So when you're calling it sewer, when you're calling it sewer process services, you're calling, you're saying this is bad ethics. Correct. There's there's been a lot of press over the last five years, especially. It kind of culminated in New York, and New York made some huge changes. There were a lot of process servers that would just go and dump it on people's porches and say they served it when they really didn't. There's a lot of collection agencies that file these lawsuits, and they get these servers that will just go dump it somewhere. And then they get these judgments, and they start levying people's bank accounts. And the people never even got served properly. They never even had a chance. So in New York, there was a big article written up about it. And the New York courts actually pulled 
every single solitary proof of service that they had done in the last year, and they logged in each person that signed it, and there was quite a few process servers that had all of their diligence. They logged every every piece of diligence. Mm -hmm. These process servers that were at nine different locations at exactly the same day, exactly the same time. Amazing. So the, the, the report that they put together was astounding. And that just turned the whole legal world in New York upside down. So I'm an advocate for upholding the due process rights. People think mm. that we process servers work for the attorney that hired us. Yes, they're paying our bills, but you know, our, our invoices, but we as disinterested parties, we're not supposed to have an interest in the case. We're supposed to be neutral. We right. have a duty to our client to serve the papers in any manner necessary within the law. However, we also have an equal duty, in my opinion, we have an equal duty to uphold the due process rights of the person we're serving. So we should not be signing a proof of service unless we've lawfully served this person and we have a good idea in our mind that this person we're serving is going to get this notice. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't, if that isn't how the papers are being served, then people shouldn't be serving them. And I won't sign a proof of service unless I know that I've had situations where an attorney will send me to a house and they'll say, I got the postal form back that they live there. So just drop the papers on anybody. So I go to the door and I knock on the door and I say, hi, I'm here to see Bob Smith. And they say, oh, he doesn't live here. My answer is, huh, why are they sending me here? Does he get his mail here? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, mail comes here. Now, most people would drop that, drop the papers. Yeah. But I have to ask one more question. Oh, well, when his mail comes, do you put it in an envelope and send it to him? Or does he come by and get it once in a while? And if the answer is, oh, no, I have no idea who he is. I just throw it in the trash. Then I can't leave the documents there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mail's delivered there, but that's not what the law says. The law says, is he receiving mail at that address? Interesting. So the postal, mm -hmm. the postal form does not confirm he lives there. The postal form only confirms that they're still delivering mail. And by law... The postal carriers have to deliver letters as they're addressed subject to any forwarding orders. So mm -hmm. if nobody puts in a forwarding order, they have, under the law, they have to deliver mail to that as it's addressed. Even if the person throws it in the trash, they ha they've done, the postal carrier's done their job by putting it into that box at that address. And the postal, even if the postal carrier knows that person's moved out, they don't have the right to redirect the mail on their own. Right. Right, right. So, Interesting. you know, a lot of people get that as a, as a misguided thing. Now, if the woman says to me, oh, yeah, well, he comes by every Sunday for dinner. He's my son. So then he's getting his mail there. He's receiving it. So mm -hmm. I'll hand her the documents and I'll say, okay, well, these are some important legal documents. You might want to put it with his mail and you may have his phone number. You may want to call him and let him know these documents are here. Because they're important and he needs to respond timely. Mm -hmm. And then that's, then that's a valid substitute service. But you, 
you can't just go dumping papers just because you get the form back from the post office. That doesn't make it a valid service. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, now uh, there's an association of uh, registered process servers called CalsPro. How, how much help are they to process servers? Well, they have an annual conference every year, and, you know, it's, it's different, held different places. They are there primarily as they're not there to help educate process servers so much as they're there to keep an eye on the legislation to make sure that laws don't change that take away our right to serve process. Mm -hmm. And they've been instrumental. Tony Klein, you know, in the earlier years was really instrumental in a lot of the laws that are on the books today because it it benefits process servers. And, you know, that's one of the the things that Cal's pro does. Mm -hmm. And the, the other thing is by having their website, people can go and look on their website and find process servers. There's also the National Association of Professional Process Servers, NAPS. And that one, I actually get a lot of business from there throughout the year, surprisingly, because people from all across the country use that website to find process servers. Mm -hmm. So if, if I need a process server in Minnesota, I can go and put the zip code in and find process servers. And typically, I look at how many years they've been a member, it doesn't always mean that they're going to be good because sometimes the old guys are lazy and they've gotten out of the realm of doing things right. But Mm -hmm. it can usually be an indicator that they have more experience. And if they've survived 10 years, they're probably a decent process server, but that's not always the case. And and let me just say that, you know, uh, Gretchen, this is, because this is an international show, um, and um, laws are different from state to state and from country to country, for sure. But the basic tenets of serving process are probably the sa- about the same. Some, some rules sim- may it's change. Pretty similar. But it seems- uh, yeah, there, there, there are probably very specific rules in certain states that don't pertain in other states. Mm-hmm. But because there are, I get papers from some states where I can leave it at a house on the first attempt with anyone over the age of 14. And I'm hmm. just shocked. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, <laughs> really? Yeah, no kidding. That, that's, what, that's, what they, that's their rule and their law. So all the other, all the other um, states have very pe- peculiar or specific, I should say, rules that you have to follow. And one thing that's real important for me has been to read the actual case law for how the judges interpret service of process. Judges don't okay. come across it too often, so they really don't know. And if the attorneys that are before the judges don't give the judges accurate or sufficient information to make a ruling, mm-hmm. sometimes they're making a ruling based on the limited information they have without considering all of the relevant laws. Yeah, for sure. I've seen some case law. I've I've read some case law where the ruling wasn't as accurate as it should have been, but that's because the judge did wasn't given all the information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of time. Uh, you know, 
I'm sure you know this, but a lot of times private investigators will get a call from an attorney saying um, that they had a process server go out and they weren't able to serve the person. And what we often find out is that they didn't, you know, they just go to the house, knock on the door. If nobody answers, that's it. And so uh, where private investigators will normally get into the weeds a little bit further and find out, you know, when they're going to be there or, or you know, like what you're, what you're saying, ask more questions to find out where that person's going to be. What do you think about that? You think that happens a lot? Well, it actually happens both ways, but here's the problem. And what a lot of people don't realize, including law firms, when they have their papers, like we talked earlier about attorney services, mm-hmm. they'll have their papers served by an attorney service. I started with an attorney service, so I'm speaking from experience. When I first started 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I was paid $10 for each paper that I served. $10 even. $10, and it hasn't wow. gone up. So some, some of them will pay 15 at the at the max. But think about this. They're giving me $15 to drive from Ventura to Simi Valley, which is a 45-minute drive one way. And I'm required to go at least six times. Six times? I can't, I can't even three. pay my gas to drive out there two times. Okay. So when you're only getting paid $10 or $15 for a serve and you have to go at least six times, you want to get it out of your hands as quick as possible. So that's why, plus you, it, you don't want to drive 45 minutes just when you have one paper. So sometimes you'll hold on to the paper until you have a whole bunch of serves. So when I first started, I didn't know how it worked and I... You know, you just wait till you get a bunch of papers. Luckily, with the attorney services, the big ones, they give you a ton of papers. So you might have 20 or 30 papers in your, in your box to serve at one time. Mm-hmm. So if you drive all the way out to an outlaying area, you might have 10 jobs in that area. And you can try to hit them, and maybe you'll get two or three one night. Then the next time you drive out again, you hit two or three the next night. So it's not like you're driving all the way there for just one. But... Sometimes you are, depending on where it is. So the individual process servers that work for these attorney services, they're contractors. They're not employees. They're not, mm-hmm. They don't have a big stake in getting the paper served legally or even at all. Because right. a lot of them will just fudge their details and say, well, I went this day, this time, this day, this time. And they'll turn it in at the end of six times and they get their $15. So even and if you're they only saying one six, time, so they don't so have I'm, incentive I'm, like a business owner. You know, private investigators right. and people like myself, I'm a business owner. I have a reputation to right. maintain. So I'm not going to have very many clients if I keep coming back with reports where I can't get them served. So, Gretchen, I'm interested in this six times. I have not heard the six times before. I've heard three. So no, you're saying that you have a, to... Sorry to interrupt. Six times is the requirement put on the the process servers by the attorney service. That's not the court. Okay. Yep. Six times is what what these process servers, process serving companies, the attorney services, it's what they want. You know, they tell their clients. They get these contracts with these law firms, 
and they say, our servers go out six times, at least six times on every job. Or mm, some of them I might see. say five, five times. <clears throat> but okay. the ones that I know usually want you to go at least six times. Well, it, what's the remedy, Gretchen, for um, this issue of, you know, the ridiculous amount of pay, for example, for one thing, and then um, the no commitment on the part of the process server? What well, do you Well, the suggest? remedy is like with anything. It, you get what you pay for. No matter what occupation there is, there's the lower-end people that are not paid very much up to the higher-end people. I use the example all the time with attorneys. You know, when a judge says to me, hey, why should... I'm not going to give you $100 to do a serve. Are you kidding? Like $40 is the going rate. And my response to that is, Your Honor, $40 is what the sheriff charges, and the sheriff only goes out there three times, and they only go between 6.30 in the morning and 4.45 in the afternoon. They don't go on weekends, and they don't go in the evenings. Mm-hmm. So I said, with attorneys, before I'll tell the judge, I'll say, <clears throat> you have attorneys that come before you, Your Honor, and they have, some of the attorneys get $250 an hour. Other attorneys get seven or $800 an hour. Why is there a disparity in what they get per hour? It's based on their education, training, and experience, and maybe specialty. So not every attorney is worth $750 an hour. Not mm-hmm. every process server is worth $100 to have a job done. So these attorneys... They want to keep their cost of litigation down, so they want to get it done the cheapest way they can. Right, for sure. So you get what you pay for. If if I don't consider any attorney services or the sheriff or anybody like that as my competition, there is so much business out there to be had. There are so many papers to be served. None of those attorney services or the sheriff is taking money out of my pocket. The types mm-hmm. of clients, the types of clients that would want to use a low, a low paid service, those are the types of clients I don't want anyway because they're not going to value the the effort that I put into the service. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not disparaging attorney services at all. They're doing the best that they can, and a lot of them are very reputable and they work very hard. But the reality is they have to compete with other attorney services. So, you know, if one, two, three attorney service is charging 60 bucks, then four, five, six attorney service is going to charge 40 or 50 bucks. They, they try to keep competitive with each other. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, mm-hmm. otherwise, their law firm co- might get a contract with a different attorney service than with them. So it's a competition world out there, and it all comes down to price. But right. for me, I've never, I've never schooled my clients on focusing on price. They, they get what they pay for with me. I work hard. I'm going to do everything I can to get the job served and make it stay and withhold a motion to quash service. And some, some attorneys will value that. And those are the kinds of attorneys that I want for a client personally. For sure. For sure. Now, uh, Gretchen, are there documents that only a process server can serve? Let's talk about that just briefly. In, in California, there is. 
I, I can't speak for other states. They'd have to review their own personal laws. But almost all the judgment enforcement, any document that excuse me, any document that is for post-judgment after the judgment is entered, those documents can only be served by a registered process server, most of them. So, like levies and wage garnishments and things like that, the subpoenas and the memorandum of costs, those documents can be served by any person. But really, the only, the only document pre-litigation, during the litigation phase, that can only be served by a registered process server is called a pre-judgment claim. And that is mm-hmm. only served with unlawful detainers. And why they have that set up like that, I'm not quite sure, but that's how they do. And the prejudgment claim is that the document that is served on the all unnamed occupants. So typically with an unlawful detainer, you're serving the named people that are being sued. But you're also serving anybody else that might be living at the house that the landlord doesn't know about that might want to claim possession. Okay. So you serve that that unknown group of people with a prejudgment claim by mm. posting and mailing and whatnot. So that can only be served by a registered process server. But there is one little misconception in California. I've heard people say that, oh, only registered process servers can serve debtor's exams. No, that's not what the law says. The law says, the debtor's exam can be served by anybody. However, if the debtor doesn't show up, then the court can only issue a warrant if the oh, debtor's based exam on the was served by a registered process server. So what okay. that means is private investigators that are not registered process servers can go ahead and serve a debtor's exam. If the debtor shows up, fine. If the debtor mm-hmm. doesn't show up, they won't be able to get a warrant. So yeah. they do their client a disservice. So whenever a private investigator calls me about that, I said, well, ask your client, let your client know that they can't have a warrant if it's not served by a process server, registered process server. So, right. you know, that's one of the reasons that private investigators that want to serve process should go ahead and get registered because that way they have the ability to serve debtor's exams and their clients can get warrants. Plus, um, in California, all fees incurred by a registered process server to skip trace or otherwise locate the person to be served, those are all fully recoverable. Mm-hmm. Private investigation fees are not fully recoverable. Yeah. So private investigators can make themselves more valuable to their clients by saying, oh, guess what? I'm a registered process server, and so everything you pay me to do this, to find this guy and get him served, it can all be added to the case because it's right. statutory. Right. Gretchen, so we, need to, to, we need to take a – sorry, I have to interrupt. We need to take a quick break. Uh, they're okay. bugging me from the studio. So uh, we'll be back in just a few with Gretchen Lichtenberger. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program is pretty much all you wanted to ever know about process serving, and I have Gretchen Lichtenberger as my guest. And Gretchen, I wanted to talk to you about um, this kind of dicey area of serving process in a gated community. And those of you that live in gated communities out there that are listening uh, <laughs> might want to listen carefully to this. So t- tell us about serving a, uh, a subpoena, a uh, summons and whatever documents you have in a gated community. Okay, so I'm going to speak regarding California, of course, because I don't know Uh the other laws. But in California, we have a code section, the Code of Civil Procedure 415.21. And that basically says process servers are allowed if they show, and private investigators, if they show the guard their process server identification or their private investigator card and their driver's license. Mm -hmm. They are allowed to have entry into the gated community. Well, every community is a little bit different. Some of them will call up to the house and, and tell them, Hey, I've got a process server down here. Do you want me to let them in? Mm -hmm. I think in 11 or 12 years, I've only had one person say that everyone else says, no, of course they're going to say no. So of course they're going to say no. They have to let us in. Once we comply, they don't, you don't just drive up and say, I'm a process server, let me in. The law says if you show your identification and your driver's license, you'll be let in. So if they don't let you in, case law has interpreted it to be you can drop the documents on the guard. So my typical procedure is I, walk, I drive up, I have my dash cam running, and I say, show my ID, hi, I'm registered process server, here's my identification and my driver's license, and I'm 
I need to go into the community. I have someone to serve. And they asked me, well, who are you going to see? And I say, the law just changed last year. You cannot ask me who I'm going to see anymore. And they say, well, that's our policy. We have to know. I said, well, your policy doesn't supersede California state law. Here's a copy of the law. It says you cannot ask me who I'm going to see because you guys tip them off and then they don't open the door and whatnot. Uh So they say, well, if you're not going to tell me, then I'm not going to let you in. So I say, okay, well, what's your name? I need to know who told me that so I can let the attorney know. And I get their name first. Then I look them square in the eye and I say, okay, Bob, as a security guard, you're fully within your right to deny me access after I properly identified myself. But as a registered process server who has properly identified myself, I'm allowed to leave these legal documents with you. And I hand them out the window. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the guard steps back and says, oh, no, 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 I'm not taking them. We're not taking them. We can't take them. And I uh-huh. drop them out of my hand, let them fall right at their feet. And I say, okay, Bob. I said, you know, I'm leaving the legal documents. Whether you take them or accept them, it doesn't matter. Your failure to accept these documents in a civil manner does not invalidate the service. I suggest you talk to the legal counsel because guess what? If he doesn't come to court, you're probably going to be subpoenaed to tell the judge what you did with the documents. Mm-hmm. Then I grab the dash cam off my cash and I go, and I'm videotaping these documents at your feet, Bob. Have a good day. And then I drive away. Okay. And I go straight to the mailbox. And I mail another set of documents to the person I'm trying to serve at the house. Uh And I do it by certificate of mailing. It's a little white form you use at the post office. And you get confirmation of how the envelope was addressed. It's not a a certified mail. The, The person receiving the piece of mail has no idea that you have this certificate. All it is is a confirmation from the post office that, a piece of mail addressed to Bob Smith, blah, 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 whatever, came from this but, address. Okay. It, of course, doesn't say what's in the envelope, but nothing ever does. So, yes, my proof of service is signed saying that I mailed the document, but this is extra substantiation that I mailed the document. Because in California, CCP 415.20A and 20B say that on a substitute service, you have to do a follow-up mailing, and service is deemed complete 10 days after the mailing. So it's not the leaving them with the guard that makes the service valid, it's the mailing. Service is Mm -hmm. deemed complete 10 days after the mailing. So that certificate of mailing that I get at the post office is the golden ticket. That's the proof that I fully complied with the law. And there's case law that has interpreted those kinds of serves, and it basically says if the security guard's gate is the closest the process server can get to the house, then if the people in the house are using the security guard to, to control the access to their house, then the security guard is an extension of the residence and substitute service on the guard is proper. But all of that is contingent on the fact that the process server or the private investigator fully complied with 415.21, that's CCP 415.21, by showing them the 
registered process server or private investigator ID and their driver's license, and that they were denied access. Okay. So you can't just drive up and get denied access and drop the papers and not show them ID on purpose so that you're denied access. So that happens sometimes. Another thing that happens a lot is that the guards take down your information and they just open the door and let you in. As soon as they let you in, they call up to the house. So there is no denial. So you can't drop the papers on the guard because there's no denial. And you Mm -hmm. can't drive up to the house and they are not there and then come back and give them to the guard. That doesn't work. Okay. It only works when you are denied access. So one of the tricks that I've used in some of the, the more difficult complexes, I go online and I find a house that's for sale in the complex. And I, when you look at these for sale houses, you can see whether there's furniture in there. So I find a house that's vacant. I pull up to the guard shack and I said, hi, I have legal documents for such and such address. And they go, oh, well, no one lives there. I go, yeah, probably not. But these guys, they, they got a GPS locator on me and they, got, they want me to go up and take a picture of the house. So I got to at least try and take a picture. So they let me mm-hmm. in. It's a vacant house. Mm-hmm. But I go to the house I want. Yeah, interesting. So that's one way. Sometimes there's, there's a, a big complex that's got a lot of multimillionaires in it in Calabasas. And every person that moves into that complex has to sign a form for service of process. And it says, whenever a service of process, process server comes to our gate, how do you want to be notified? By phone, by text, or by email? So if they wrote text, then they're going to get a text every time. The person will get a text every time a process server is let in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that becomes problematic from that standpoint. I have so, staked out people in, because in, I go to the door that, you know, they text them, they let, let them know they let me in. So I just sit out in front of the house and then they call security and security comes over and I tell them, I said, I, they go, well, you can't be here. And I said, actually, I can. As a registered process server, I have an exemption from trespass pursuant to Penal Code 602N and 602.8C3. And I give them a copy of the law. So they go, well, these are private streets. I said, so call the sheriff if you think I'm doing something wrong. So they call the sheriff, and the sheriff shows up, and I show them my ID. I show them the law, and I show them the legal documents. And the sheriff says, okay, you can keep sitting here all you want. Hmm. Interesting. So, question. Um, if you don't have to disclose where you're going within the gated community, um, how, does, how do they notify them? Well, this is what they used to do is notify them. But okay. here's, what I do, here's what I do now. When I pull up, I say, here's a copy of the law. You can't ask me anymore where I'm going. But I understand mm-hmm. you have security issues because you don't know that I'm really going someplace. So mm-hmm. why don't you just escort me? Mm-hmm. And, I, okay. and that's what usually happens if they have a second guard available to escort. And if they don't, if, if they don't, if they're not going to escort me in, then they're denying me access. Then I'm going to drop the papers on the guard. Right. But I've, okay. been, I've been escorted quite a few times. I don't have a problem with that. Now, Gretchen, that applies to documents like like summons and complaint and those kind of documents. What about a subpoena for personal appearance? 
Well, it's a good question, Francie, but if you read this, the code for 15.21, it actually says subpoena that a registered process server will be granted a, a, a entrance to serve a summons or subpoena. It's actually written in there. And the statutes say, you know, that you, from a substitute service standpoint, you would think that something ha- that requires personal service would have to be served on the person. Mm-hmm. But the question becomes, from a judge's perspective, what did you do to give the person accurate notice? So if they're living in a gated community and they're not allowing access, and you do the follow-up mailing, the judge, probably 95% of the time, the judge is going to uphold it. I even had a judge uphold a service like that at one of the studios, the movie studios. Now, keep in mind, 415.21 says a guard-gated community staffed at the time of service. Mm -hmm. So I looked up the definition of community. It doesn't say guard-gated residential community. Right, right. So you can use that at any kind of community to include a place of employment, uh, a movie studio, you know, anything like that. So I actually served a restraining order on the security guard at a movie studio because they wouldn't let me on the, the, the lot at all. And because this guy was sleeping on people's couches and he didn't really have a physical address. And I told mm-hmm. the client, I said, you know, there's, you got a 50-50 shot with my declaration that the judge will uphold this. But if the judge doesn't, then you go to the hearing anyway and you just continue it and we'll have to find a way to get them served somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but you got a 50-50 shot. And the judge read my declaration, everything I put down, and he considered it a, a valid personal service because I confirmed with the guard that the guy was at work that day. Okay, It wasn't good. just... I, I just dropped it on the guard randomly. And again, yeah. I wouldn't have signed the proof of service if, if I didn't believe I was giving the person proper notice. Right. Gretchen, we are, I can't even believe this. We are out of time. We have one minute left. Quickly, give, me your, give us your website and how people can contact you. Well, my website is in dire need of updating. So... Uh, if anybody knows a good website person, I need a definitely need a new website. But it's a like Apple. You've been served. A Y O U V like Victor E B like boy E E N like Nancy served S like Samuel E R V like Victor E D like David. You've My been served. A you've U-B- been served. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we. We actually have to cut off. I can't even believe we're done. But it's been such a pleasure, Gretchen. Thank you so much. And for all of you, uh, happy holidays. See you next uh, after the Christmas holiday and tune in next week as we declassify topics of interest for private investigators and the world. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Gretchen. We have so much more to talk about. Yeah, we'll do it next time. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. 
P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 